Hi, I'm David Freudberg, host of Humankind. Listeners know that we explore many realms of the human journey, and some of our podcasts, including some of my favorites, delve into wisdom traditions, sometimes ancient writings or teachings that arise from a variety of backgrounds, sources that help us to focus on truths that really matter. And a lot of this boils down to connecting to something bigger than ourselves, to see that we're all part of some mysterious river of meaning, that the whole is truly greater than the sum of its parts. When I can get calm and touch that inner place of quietude, it points me homeward. Thank you. Humankind is produced in association with WGBH Boston and supported by the Humankind Program Fund. Additional funding for this series has been provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the National Institutes of Health, the Annie E. Casey Foundation, and the Park Foundation. It turned out in the Gulf War that there were very large numbers of civilian casualties. The word accident is used again and again by the military when it is pointed out that their bombs killed civilians. And, uh, and some of them are accidents in the sense that they didn't intend to kill civilians, but at the same time, not really accidents in the sense that when you start bombing, um, the killing of civilians is inevitable. So it's, it's neither deliberate nor an accident, but there's something in between deliberate and accident, and the word is inevitable. The shocking rise of civilian casualties of modern warfare. You're listening to Beyond War, a documentary project from Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. Anyone who has watched a child grow and who has pondered the awesome wonder and value of human life can't help but mourn the snuffing out of life that is always the consequence of warfare's brutality and terror. The death of soldiers who knowingly venture into battle is memorialized by their countrymen the world over. But in modern warfare, increasingly, it is innocent civilians who have not chosen to make war, many too young even to understand it, whose lives are shattered in the ferocity of organized violence. Chris Hedges has covered numerous wars for the New York Times. I think everyone who spends a long time in war is emotionally damaged by war. And I don't think we understand, most of us understand, how devastating that damage is to a society. We look at the cost of war in terms of its physical cost, in terms of the destruction of villages, towns, roads, water purification plants. But perhaps more devastating is the psychological destruction of an entire generation. You can see this in Bosnia, where there's a listlessness in Sarajevo, an inability to believe anymore in anything. People are lost. People feel betrayed. War, as the ancient Greeks and Romans knew, was a god. It always 
calls for human sacrifice. At a Veterans Day observance in Cambridge, Massachusetts, a little girl in the crowd cowers at the frightening rifle blasts. In the traditional rules of war and also in international law, soldiers are classified differently from civilians. Those in military service are considered willing participants in war and thus more legitimate military targets, although historically many have been conscripted against their will. But whether in uniform or not, Human beings who experience the destructive powers of war are often scarred by what they have witnessed and endured. For some, the psychological disturbance is long-lasting. Yael Danieli, a counselor to war survivors in New York City, has observed some of the characteristics of people damaged by military violence. Difficulty falling or staying asleep, irritability or outbursts of anger, which of course also has implications interpersonally, uh, difficulty concentrating has strong implications for work life, uh, hypervigilance, you're always on guard and you always look out for trouble, and exaggerated startle, startle response. Any little noise, it's, uh, you know, you jump. So you're, you're kind of living on pins and needles. Precisely. Well, you're living in, in the war zone, except you're at home. A tendency to relive the terrible scenes of war has tormented Daryl Urchel, a Vietnam veteran and a spinal cord patient at the Heinz VA Hospital outside Chicago. So my anger gets you know, very easily upset for no cause. And then uh, cast reminders, you know, it's just not a day probably goes by and I'll read curve, you know, something that transpired when I was over in Vietnam. So it's a constant haunting, which I wish would go away, but it doesn't. What form does it take? Is it nightmares? Well, nightmares, even during the day sometimes, some subtle noise, something like that, make you jump. So anything, a lot of things, smells, noise. So I even avoid listening to certain things, like a lot of times the news that might re relate, you know, especially like now with the People think, you know, after so long, you should forget, but it's kind of hard. One of those things you just can't, you know, it's like embedded. And just like a, a record just keeps playing over and over and over in your head. You just, you wish it would just stop. You kind of go on with your life. You know, ever since I've been home, really can't make any close friends since I've been out. Or any, like, relationships. Don't want to get close to people. What do you think is the, the fear about getting close to people? Well, because if every time you got close to somebody, you somebody died after a while, you just do it as a reaction so you wouldn't have those feelings again. So for you in the service, you got close to people who then died? Correct, yeah. Quite a few people like that. And even to this day, I can remember, you know, Terry Foreman already had 52 days left in the country, wife, kids, and everything else, never made it back home. So that still, you know bothers me, you know, all the time. I don't know, if it was 
is warranty answered. It's going on for a thousand years. Doesn't seem like it's really resolved anything. The last war of the old type was the First World War, the so-called Great War. Historian Sven Lindqvist at his home in Stockholm, Sweden. Uh, which uh, stalemated along the uh, French-German frontier. And you could live rather peacefully uh, as a civilian behind the, those lines on both sides. Uh, not very much happened, say, Enemy bombing killed uh, in Britain during the whole of the First World War, 1,400 people, which was a mere fraction of the soldiers' lives that one day could cost uh, at the front. So civilian losses were then rather small. Today, you reckon that uh, civilian losses are, uh, in several wars, have been something like 80 or even 90 percent, which is the situation turned around. It, the dangerous thing in today's wars is not to be the soldier, but to be the civilian. Completely innocent. Well, what harm uh, has a small child done? Uh, a small child can maybe grow up into an enemy in some decades' time, but that's hardly a reason to kill them. Targeting innocent civilians for murder is always and everywhere wrong. June 2002, U.S. President George W. Bush addressing graduates at West Point Military Academy. There can be no neutrality between justice and cruelty between the innocent and the guilty. We are in a conflict between good and evil, and America will call evil by its name. The official policy of governments the world over is to protect civilians from military hostilities in accordance with international law. But the stark reality of war today is that the vast majority of casualties are not soldiers wearing any government's uniform. Civilians are the victims of choice in modern warfare. The military actually is much more likely to protect its own. It's actually safer to be a serviceman in modern conflicts than it is to be um, a housewife. University of London historian Joanna Burke is author of An Intimate History of Killing. The military have a zero tolerance for our side being killed. Okay? But they don't have a zero tolerance for civilians being killed. Um, that, you know, within the military, there is this culture of, of protection. Civilians are, of course, sitting ducks. Um, they, um, they are easy, much easier targets. Also, they are regarded by the enemy as being much, being much more effective in breaking down, destroying the morale within the military. 
the rationale is to destroy civilian life, what is called the vital centers of the enemy. That is, uh, mothers and children and the old people and and uh, all that are not soldiers in armor or soldiers dug down in bunkers and and uh, having been made uh, difficult to get at with bombs. In his fascinating book, A History of Bombing, Sven Lindqvist chronicles the terrible 20th century invention of aerial bombardment. Immediately upon development of the airplane, war planners recognized the military potential of flying over a target and releasing high-powered explosives. One concept was called area bombing, whose objective was to destroy an entire area, such as a populated city, using this new weapon. theory of this thing was explained very early. Uh, in 1912, a mathematician, British mathematician called Lanchester explained that if you could um, strike out the firefighting uh, machinery uh, of a city, then you could burn it down to the ground. The thing was to concentrate uh, and start as many fires as possible in, in a given area. Uh, and then uh, the effect of each fire would be multiplied because it would be impossible to put them out. And this was, with great success, used, uh, for instance, in Iraq in the 20s when the British used bombs instead of infantry battalions to uh, keep Iraq occupied. Whenever there was an uprising in uh, some part of the country, they went there with bombers and um, burned uh, the villages, which was much more effective and uh, saved many of their own soldiers' lives as compared with uh, what a punitive expedition of the ordinary kind would have cost. British tornado jets flying a sortie during the Gulf War. With today's military technology, the pilot can hover in relative safety high above the target location. But modern weaponry is frequently a blunt instrument of destruction with unreliable accuracy. The slight finger movement by a pilot pressing a button can rain down indiscriminate devastation on those below, including the innocent. Well, it's a, it's a kind of interesting moral calculation that's being made. Boston University historian Howard Zinn. And that is if a hundred people die on the ground, uh, it's to save one person up in this airplane who's dropping the bomb. Now. Uh, this uh, implies that the lives of these people are worth far less than the life of the person dropping a bomb. And then you add, have to add to that uh, really unacceptable moral calculation. Um, 
the fact that the person dropping the bomb is an aggressor. <laughs> he is on the attack. The people down there are helpless, and uh, uh, he is not dropping a bomb on people who are shooting at him. Maybe there are three people down there shooting at him and a hundred people who are not shooting at him, but all of whom will die. So uh, the moral calculation there, you know, I think cannot be accepted by anybody who claims to value human life equally, whether it's uh, somebody on the other side of a border or somebody on this side of a border. the Gulf War of 1991, high technology made possible the tiny number of casualties suffered by Americans and also produced massive death and destruction among soldiers and civilians on the ground in Iraq where the bombs fell. New York Times reporter Chris Hedges covered the war and for a time was held captive by Iraqi forces. There was no clean water, no electricity, the entire infrastructure was wiped out. I remember I was with my Iraqi captors. I was with a light armor battalion that was trying to make its way north to Baghdad. All the communications had been cut, and uh, we were heavily ambushed about 60 miles north of Basra. And 16 hours of fighting had to turn back. But I remember at one point standing with my Iraqi guards in the rain, and we had to get our water out of mud puddles, the color of coffee and it had already turned my own guts inside out. And as we were scooping the water up, a mother came with two tiny children and began drinking the water. And I knew what that water had done to me. And I knew potentially what drinking that dirty water would do to her, her tiny children. And I remember in the rain reciting it was almost an unintelligible blessing. The poem by W.H. Auden, Epitaph on a Tyrant. Perfection of a kind was what he was after, and the poetry he invented was easy to understand. He knew human folly like the back of his hand and was greatly interested in armies and fleets. When he laughed, respectable senators burst with laughter, and when he cried, the little children died in the streets. We have spent more than a billion dollars a month, over 30 million dollars a day, and we must be prepared for future operations. Afghanistan proved that expensive precision weapons defeat the enemy and spare innocent lives, and we need more of them. On the face of it, the development of smart weapons seems good because less and less innocent civilians are being killed. A new generation of costly arms technology guided by computer accuracy is often cited as a practical means of reducing unintended civilian deaths and injuries in war. Richard Bingley in London at the Campaign Against Arms Trade. But the psychological impact of the development of smart weapons is that all of a sudden it becomes easier 
to intervene militarily in various areas. And therefore, you might be more likely to intervene militarily in more areas. And therefore, although less innocent civilians are killed at any given situation, there might be more situations where fewer innocent civilians are being killed. And the total of that is that you have a huge amount of innocent civilians being killed. You know, that towards the end of the 21st century, we are just dropping every day in different regions of the world smart weapons because we're trying to take out a terrorist threat. The term smart weapons suggests some kind of uh, godlike precision in the use of, of these armaments. Is that quite accurate? Well, they're quite accurate. If you, if you program them into a set of coordinates, then they will hit the coordinates, usually. But if your intelligence is so bad that at that particular time where the coordinates are, there are innocent civilians, then the innocent civilians will get caught. You know, for instance, there was a wedding in northern Afghanistan and 48 people were killed at the wedding. Uh, the, 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 the smart missile, as I understand it, was entirely accurate. It hit the site that it was predestined for, hit the coordinates completely correct. But the intelligence is so bad that the wrong people were at the right place at the right time. And that's the risk that we might be facing in the future. And you, you see that all the time in Israel, don't you? You, you see, um, rightly or wrongly, the taking out of a terrorist threat in Israel. But they're never alone. They're always surrounded by people. Or I remember a Hellfire missile hitting a group of 16 people in Gaza when it took out the military leader of Hamas but it also killed nine children. Um, so perhaps, you know, when we think about the legacy of smart weapons, yes, on the one hand, it can be more accurate, it, it can be more useful as a military tool, but on the other hand, it makes us more ready to use military action, probably. My budget includes the largest increase in defense spending in two decades, because while the price of freedom and security is high, it is never too high. Whatever it costs to defend our country, we will pay. The huge rise in military spending in the wake of the September 11, 2001 attacks has enlarged the marketplace for the weapons makers who develop armaments and supply them to armies. And although some weapons are top secret, a surprising number are publicly advertised and marketed. At a recent convention of the Association of the United States Army, hundreds of weapons manufacturers crammed into the corridors and exhibit halls of hotels in downtown Washington, D.C. At one booth, people lined up to take target practice with a new model rifle. At a nearby table, the sign boasted 20 million projectiles shipped. Products ranged from thick bullets half a foot long to tanks, to a futuristic-looking infantry rifle that reminded me of a bat with outspread wings. The literature claimed it significantly increases lethality. The slogan of one firm was no place to hide. All manner of army personnel in uniform mingled with salesmen in a spirited atmosphere. I was accompanied by an army brigadier general, John Hutton, who was also a military surgeon. I wanted to understand what some of these weapons might do to the human body. Uh, they've had some new developments uh, recently uh, that, that uh, create huge overpressures, things of that sort. Overpressure means? Well, it means creating pressures that are much greater than atmospheric pressure. 
These were initially designed probably to uh, be detonated in caves or, or in inside areas. If you were near an area in Vietnam, for instance, where the B-52s had done this carpet bombing, uh, and some of the people that just couldn't get out of the way it, of it would come in with these uh, overpressure injuries. What would be the nature of the injury? Uh, mainly pulmonary. The eardrums would go first, and if you see somebody walking around with sort of a stunned expression on their face, uh, eyes widely dilated, uh, having perhaps some foam, a pinkish foam coming out of their lungs into their mouth, uh, that would be a sign that there had been not only damage to the eardrums, but there'd be pulmon multiple pulmonary contusions. There's a handheld rocket, and uh, let's go over and look at that. We walked over to a booth manned by Werner Reinl, a salesman for the Deal Company, a weapons manufacturer headquartered in Nuremberg, Germany. This, this is a rocket that you'd, yeah. you'd position on your shoulder? Something you can launch from your shoulder, yes. Then it's a bunker buster, you know? What, you know what a bunker buster is? Normally it's an anti-tank ammunition, you know, if you kill the tanks. And we have modified the warhead because we have a specially deal knowledge on warhead and, and, and ammunition. And this warhead is a two-stage warhead. It goes through the wall and inside it explodes, you know, with fragments, you know. And therefore we call it bunker pasta. And then you can do uh, sand or concrete or wooden wall, and you can uh, attack people behind this wall, you know. And you get this concussive effect. And offensive weapons are usually those that make concussion uh, and give you the shock effect. And, and then, of course, by the bunker buster, it, if you can get it through the bunker wall, everything inside is neutralized, at least temporarily, and you, you rush in and... Uh, neutralized means they're in shock, or...? Neutralized means whatever's in there is not effective. They're neutral. They're, they're dead? They're, they're neutral. Can be. Can be, surely. How, how many metal fragments would be released in one of these blasts? Are we talking hundreds? No, 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 yeah, hundreds. 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 And all of them could pierce the body? Yes. Depending on the velocity, yes, sure. If you were in a house and that went off, absolutely, they'd, they'd uh, not. There's two just definitions. One is to penetrate, and the other is to perforate. And a lot of them would probably perforate, meaning go totally through the extremity or through the chest. And you need an effective weapon system, you know, because if you have not an effective weapon system, then you are killed if you approach the house. And therefore, you know, that it's maybe not a human <laughs> system, you know, but it, it's against terrorists and what we have to face, you know? You're, you're saying it's not necessarily a human system? I, I think no, no war is human, you know? The surreal atmosphere of all these weapons of destruction became almost overwhelming. The amazing array of devices that had been thought up and manufactured for the purpose of killing and maiming and powerfully exploding. All here on display in a kind of vast department store where salesmen glad hand buyers trying to close the deal. May I have one of these brochures, yes, sir? Yes, yes, yes. How many will order? I, how many will I order? <laughs> what would one of those uh, those rocket launchers oh, go no, for? No, no, no. What is the roundabout the price? It depends. You know, it depends on the quantity. It depends on a lot of things. Let's say I bought a hundred. <laughs> one hundred is. Uh, we do not normally. We have thousand. You know. Let's 10, say. 000. Let's say I bought ten thousand of them. Ten thousand. I don't know. What What is the roundabout? Five thousand bucks at a quantity of ten thousand. Yeah. For your four ninety nine. <laughs>
to Beyond War, a documentary project from humankind. I'm David Freudberg. Studio recording by Steve Colby. Editorial assistance from Francis McGovern and Kathy Graham. Music performed by Brad Hatfield. Research assistance by Ersely Coquillon. Special thanks to Benjamin Ferenz, Bernard Lau, and Steve Cedar. Our program is presented by Human Media in association with The Network Incorporated. Program development and support provided by Shart Media. You can hear more episodes of our series at humankindpodcast.org. That's humankindpodcast.org. This segment of Beyond War is Humankind Program number 63. The executive producer is David Freudberg. Please subscribe to our free weekly podcast. The title is Humankind on Public Radio. You can find it at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, NPR One, and all major podcast services, as well as through our website. Again, the podcast title is Humankind on Public Radio. And if you'd like to support our program, please visit humankindpodcast.org. And at the top, click on How You Can Help. Thank you.